Good to have you here on episode 152. We are talking low-carb diets today. Have you tried them before? When done correctly, they're a brilliant tool for weight loss, insulin management, alleviating emotional eating and sugar addiction, clearing brain fog, and reversing and recovering from disease. When done incorrectly, it can lead to lots of cravings, binge eating, and in some instances, the exact issues you're trying to solve with the diet. So, if you want to know what low-carb actually looks like, what it's good for, and which mistakes to avoid when doing it, then buckle up and let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? How you doing? What's going on? I hope you've been super well. As you know, it's my mission to coach 250 men and women to lose weight and be their healthiest self before the end of December 2021. So, I'll tell you what, in this weird time, I hope you're finding both something small to be grateful for and something big worth fighting for every single day so that you feel like you've got purpose in this, yeah, bizarre reality that relentlessly drags on. For me, something that I'm grateful for are the people that I get to work with and support on their health journey, whether it be to lose weight because all the diets in the past haven't worked or to improve your gut health because bloating, diarrhea, constipation and pain when eating have become normal or working on controlling blood sugar and reversing your insulin resistance, which leads to less inflammation, less brain fog and a lot more energy and stable energy levels too. Or even working on emotional eating and self-confidence. I am super grateful, super grateful to do this work because it's so amazing to have calls with clients and hear about their phenomenal phenomenal results and transformations that they've been getting. And after a call, I literally bounce around my apartment, (laughs) releasing my energy because I'm just so excited and proud. And it's just, it's really amazing work to be able to do and see the men and women that I work with make these changes, reclaiming their health and feeling so good about themselves in the process, which is awesome. And so, I've been doing it for about three years, which has been an amazing three years, lots of growth uh, via my signature program, which is why I want to let you know that the final intake of that program at the current price point is happening right now, this week. And after this week, and this week, we're in the last week of October in 2021 right now, after this week the price will be increasing because we've added a lot of content to help you achieve your health goals and make the process as smooth and as easy to implement as possible so that you can get the results that you want, so that you feel good in your own skin once again. And so, given that growth of both my skill set and the program over the three years, the price will be increasing to reflect its true value. So, if you want to get in on this final intake before the price rise, then you have to make this happen today. So, scroll down to the show notes below and click the m.me link and send me the word PROGRAM in capital letters, PROGRAM. And that will start a conversation directly with me via Messenger and we can get you started in the program this week. This is not a drill (laughs) or any type of marketing tactic. It's actually happening. Oh, and I should mention too that we cap our numbers for each intake so that I have enough space in my brain for everyone. (laughs) And thus, 
we only have five spots remaining for this year. So, if that's going to be you, scroll down to the m.me link, send me the word program and let's get you started today before the price goes up. Sound good? I think that sounds really good. (laughs) Okay, to today's episode, low carbohydrate diets. You've likely heard about them before and maybe you've even tried them before too. However, as is my experience working with people in the nutrition and diet space, most people that try diets don't always go about them correctly, which is often not your fault because it's really easy to have diet, nutrition, information overwhelm, leading to analysis paralysis or simply by navigating a new space on your own, it just can simply mean you don't know what you don't know, right? Or... There's another guy in the situation that may not know, and I shouldn't just say guy, there could be a gal as well, in the situation that doesn't really know what's going on, and that could be your doctor who's randomly suggesting things that they're not really familiar with. And there's some amazing doctors out there that have done their homework on nutrition, but most haven't. So, there's lots of reasons why low-carb or any type of diet could not be going really well. So, For you, if low-carb hasn't worked for you before, then you may not have been doing it correctly or it actually may have been the wrong tool for the job, which is totally possible. There's definitely people that low-carb will not be beneficial for and there'll be situations where low-carb's not the right tool for the job. However, in the Western world where everyone that we know is basically fat, sick, and diseased in some way, and if that's not you yet, it probably feels like you're in a bit of a holding pattern until the health problem lottery goes off and you're initiated into your first diagnosis. (laughs) With this being the unfortunate reality of our world, I actually think most people, not everyone, but most people can benefit from a low-carbohydrate diet. It's important to note, though, that low, low low-carbohydrate is not no-carbohydrates. I want to make that distinction. There's an important difference. And where you sit on that definition of what low means for you, and I mean what I mean by that is how it engages with your biology, will be unique to you. There's a ballpark that will work for most people, but you will find your spot, your sweet spot in the low-carb world. Firstly, I want to share something that might shock you. There's actually no human requirement for carbohydrates. Insane, right? Despite for however many years we've been at home and our parents or or even us have been piling pasta and rice into our sport-enthused children and cooking big hearty meals at home because we need energy, got to keep our energy levels going, we've got to keep the machine running, there's actually no human requirement for carbohydrates. So, where did this idea come from? Well, there's a few different places that it came from. One, the health and nutrition guidelines and the government and the farms that produce these massive amount of grains. So, that if we think about the food pyramid back in the day, suggesting that we consume lots of grains, lots of bread, lots of pasta. Uh, and the education that came with that was, of course, that we need carbohydrates for energy. The other thing that I want you to be clear on too is that when I say there's no human requirement for carbohydrates... What do I mean by that? Why? Because our liver physically constructs the sugar molecules that we would otherwise get from carbohydrate foods via a process called gluconeogenesis. So, we don't actually have to get carbohydrates from food because our liver builds the molecules anyway. Crazy, right? However, don't mistake what I'm saying for meaning that carb-rich foods should be avoided because... 
All vegetables are considered carbohydrate-rich foods, and there are a lot of valuable micronutrients, electrolytes, and antioxidants that come from the colorful array of carb-rich vegetables, which is why I say low-carb and not no-carb. And I think that mantra holds true, especially for women that may have hormonal imbalances and irregularities. However, that conversation needs to be tailored for you because I also have worked with women that benefit from an extremely low-carb diet that have regulated their hormones. It's different for everyone. However, the majority of us will fall into, you know, a general category because we're all human. (laughs) However, the nuances are going to be different for everyone. There are a lot of different definitions of what low carb means from a gram of carbohydrate per day standpoint. So, depending where you look on the internet, it's different everywhere. So, Some people say 20 to 50 grams of carbohydrates is considered ketogenic. So, you're in the ketogenic diet space at that point. Some people actually say that ketogenic is 20 grams or below. So, both of these are still low-carb or extremely low-carb options, but this is on the really low-carb or ketogenic end. So, I would definitely say if you're under 20, you're ketogenic. Depending on the definition, if you're under 50 grams of carbs, you're considered ketogenic or you're starting to border on low-carb because then the next classification is about 30 to 100 grams of carbohydrates is considered low-carb. Low-carb is not ketogenic. They're slightly different. There's a physiological difference. It's not just based on the amount of carbs that the title of the diet changes. There's something about your body that changes. In addition to that, there's also behavioral and psychological implications of not being in ketosis. Your behavior and your connection, emotional connection to food will be slightly different. Well, not for everyone because some people are blessed to not have emotional connections to food. That's about 0.0000001% of the population. (laughs) To give you some comparison though as as to what kind of low carb we're talking about, here is what the dietary guidelines suggest we have in regards to volume of carbohydrates. 225 to 325 grams of carbohydrates. That's what they say and we've got this world of fat sick and nearly dead people, right? However, caveat here. Disclaimer here, however, we've got to be careful here not to mismatch correlation with causation. It is not solely carbohydrate consumption that is causing the world's problems. The primary issue comes from the types of carbohydrates that the government recommends and makes affordable and the processing and manufacturing that goes into those carbohydrates which we, the masses, consume that make them so significantly detrimental. The additional sugar, the refined sugar, the unnatural micronutrient distribution in those foods because they're so extremely altered, the genetic modification that goes in them that again results in a differentiation in the nutritional composition of that particular food as it grows. And then the vegetable oils that are often added into these foods that we have them with or we cook them with at home or at a restaurant, like... There's so many layers of things going wrong with this recommendation, but it's not solely the carbohydrate itself because I know people that have gotten extremely lean, extremely ripped eating this amount of carbohydrates. So, be certain not to incorrectly link carbs and obesity or carbs and any type of disease. You can link many of them. However, remember... We've got to be clear. We've got to acknowledge all the places that dysfunction can be created. And it's not just from carbohydrates solely. So, when we do consume these types of foods that we're just talking about that, you know, the guidelines recommend and which inevitably puts us on a high carbohydrate diet, over time, the sugar 
It's because all carbohydrates are broken down to the same sugars in the body. So it doesn't matter if you get them from a sweet potato, from a McDonald's burger, from ice cream, the body will break them down into the same individual components of glucose. So over that time, the sugar that is broken down and processed by the liver destroys your liver and then causes, well, slowly develops fatty liver disease. And as that develops, so does weight gain, and we've effectively damaged or broken the carbohydrate processing machine that is our liver. And when we get to the point of significant biological damage, it means our therapeutic response or the diet we choose to use as the tool to fix the problem might have to become a bit more drastic. And I'm all for one tweak a week. I really am. I think slow, small progression change over time is the only way to create sustainable progress. However, some people when they're in a dire situation might need to go for a short period of time into a more extreme diet or a more restrictive diet. But that's when we sort of move away from weight loss per se and we move into like using this as a therapeutic agent in the same way we might use medication or herbs to respond to a specific problem. So, it's important to get those distinctions right. They're two different classifications. Don't get me wrong. I think people that need a therapeutic response will equally have the same consequences of diving headfirst into a restrictive diet as anybody else. So, you know, we kind of default to the same thing. Everybody needs to get back to the progressive one tweak a week change. However, depending on the individual, we might need to go a little bit more extreme for some people. It's different for everyone. The ongoing caveat. Anyway, back to the liver. As an example, if we get to the point where the liver and the pancreas are significantly impaired, low carb might not be enough to move the needle and you might have to go across to really low carb, which we mentioned before um, is more of the ketogenic diet. So, you might have to go full ketogenic for a few months and it actually takes at least four to six weeks to really get into a stable ketosis or a ketogenic state. There's lots of debates around that. Again, different for the individual, but... Generally speaking, it will take people several weeks to months if you've been a sugar burner, a carb and sugar burner for most of your life. Your cellular mechanisms will be solidly locked into using these pathways, these carbohydrate energy producing pathways. And the alternative way to make energy is going to be from fat, which is what the idea of what a low carbohydrate diet encourages and a ketogenic diet essentially defaults to. If those mechanisms in your cells aren't built up in a way that your body is familiar with building or using, then it's going to be extremely challenging. So, it will take several weeks in order to get into this. But this is why we do one tweak a week because if we do it abruptly, you end up suffering with the keto flu, uh, which is known as essentially carbohydrate withdrawal in many ways and is associated with primarily the mineral deficiencies and electrolyte deficiencies that happen because when we have less carbohydrates in the diet, we reduce the water content of the body and in the water is where your electrolytes and minerals hang out. So, if you've got less water, you've got less minerals. So, you've got to figure out a way to supplement or add in or add salt to a lot of your food and a lot of minerals uh, and eat foods that have electrolytes in them. Anyway, I digress. If you want to learn more about the keto diet, I did an episode on the keto diet which is episode number 37, which incidentally is my lucky number. (laughs) Anyway, so I want to share a few things about the low-carb diet and what it might be useful for. Okay, so if you have excess body weight, it's really good to help 
facilitate weight loss and specifically excess body weight. Now, it's important to make the distinction between weight loss and fat loss because I'm pretty sure you don't want to lose height or organs or bone. (laughs) You want to lose fat. And what actually happens in the first few weeks of going low carb, people get really excited due to the quick results. They're like, whoa, I've lost one, two, three, four kilograms or two, three, four, five pounds really quickly. And it's exciting. But most of that in the beginning will actually be water weight. It's useful to know that when you go low carb, the first weight reduction you experience, it's highly likely will be the water content you hold in your body, which will happen naturally because the body will simply release that as time moves forward via going to the toilet, your breath and your sweat, and you will likely feel a bit lighter. The water is out now, but then you might stagnate a little bit with the weight loss because it's gone from just the water uh, being released from your body, which is a relatively smooth process because it's not bound to your body, if you know what I mean, like the fat is. And then you've got to begin the actual fat loss journey, like accessing that stored food energy. And the reason that this is the case is because in the body, carbohydrates and sugars require a greater volume of water to be stored in comparison to the likes of body fat. So, that's what happens. And the same is true in the other direction as well. You'll gain water weight when you increase the amount of carbohydrates and sugar that you eat because you need those to be stored in the body. So, therefore, we need more water. Additionally, remember it's not about cutting out carbs. It's not about eliminating carbs and being in this huge calorie deficit. That's not the right strategy. And if you're going slowly, as is most ideal, it should take three to four weeks of small changes over time in order for you to start seeing fat loss results. Remember fat loss, not just weight loss. Some people get in earlier than others. Some people start straight away. Their bodies are really receptive. Their metabolisms are great. Some people take a couple of weeks. Both are healthy as long as you take the one tweak a week approach. Remember, if you go too extreme in the beginning, then you're going to have a plateau happen even sooner, right? We don't want that to come too soon. Inevitably, the body adapts to lots of situations. And what we want from the body is to do things slowly so that it lets go and releases the body fat in a really stable manner that allows the body to continue letting go of the fat for longer, which delays the plateau. And in an ideal scenario, the plateau doesn't come at all because we make small changes and we keep changing things slightly as we progress to our goal location for our health where we want to arrive and feel really good in our own body and feel great about ourselves and feel sexy you know when we arrive there ideally we want small changes until we get there then we're at a healthy weight again right another thing to mention is that it might not be an ideal tool for weight loss if you haven't sorted out your blood sugar issues which fortunately a low-carb diet can help you do as well Voila! (laughs) How convenient, Maddie. So, here is where intermittent fasting comes in as a really helpful adjunct to the low-carb diet because high blood sugar is actually toxic to the body and that's why diabetics are forever chasing their high blood sugar with more and more insulin injections, which I personally think is like trying to put out a fire by starting another fire. Conversation for another day about how Western medicine manages diabetes, but they certainly make a lot of money from insulin sales. Anyway, I digress. I keep digressing, don't I? (laughs) Maddie loves a tangent. But the job of insulin is that it goes into the blood and it takes the sugar out and either stores it in the liver or the muscle or into body fat or, you know, wherever it needs to go and be used as metabolic fuel. Now, as we get more and more overweight, we develop more and more metabolic dysfunction, particularly in the area of this blood sugar and insulin relationship. The insulin starts not being able to keep up and there is a dysfunctional blood sugar control going on, but it's usually caused by dietary problems. 
Hence, the low-carb diet mixed with intermittent fasting is a superb combination here because we reduce the sugar that's going into the blood and we also reduce the size of the insulin spike because we're reducing the amount of sugar that's going into the blood. And usually, creating these problems in the first place is due to overeating all the wrong types of foods, which are full of refined sugars, refined carbs, and usually full of vegetable oil as well. And so, implementing this low-carb diet means that we're basically blood sugar's lower, the insulin's lower, the demand on the pancreas to produce insulin is lower, everything's lower, (laughs) which might lead you to say, but we need sugar and carbs for energy, right? So, myth-busting time. So, we've been sold this myth, right, for years and years and years that we need to be smashing carbs for energy. And yes, absolutely, carbohydrates work as energy. They produce energy in the body for every cell in the body when we're consuming lots of sugars and carbs. However, this has been a good strategy for marketing companies over the last 40-odd years that have been able to push the whole three meals, three snacks, eat all day to keep your metabolism up, aka keep buying food, right? Now, what they've done is they've convinced us that we need to eat all day, every day in order for that to be a thing, right? To keep your energy, to keep your metabolism up, to keep going. Life's so busy. And it's been since what? Like 1980-ish. How do you think humans kept their blood sugar up or their blood sugar stable for all of human history since before 1980? (laughs) Just imagine it's the year 707 and the Vikings are like, has anyone got a jelly bean? Oh my God, my blood sugar. (laughs) So, it's a myth. It's a myth that you need to eat carbohydrates for energy. There's Nowadays, there's carnivore marathon runners. You don't even necessarily need to be like a hike on a high-carb diet for cardio workouts. Now, there's a special way to navigate all of that. We enter sports nutrition and athletic nutrition and it's another conversation. But my point is that lots of different things can be true at the same time and some of those things can be better than others as well. So, the reason that it's a myth though even in 707 when the Vikings were going to war, is because your liver, via the method of gluconeogenesis, will create the sugar that you need to put into your blood for energy. It will be fine and your insulin will do its job as well. However, if you do have blood sugar instabilities that do affect you, and what I mean by that is that you're so familiar with being in such a high sugar and carb state or such a solid sugar and carb burner that because you've consumed all sorts of different foods that have led to that or followed the three meals, three snacks advice for a long time and maybe there's an emotional eating piece in there as well or you're significantly overweight and you're wanting to change that, if you've wired yourself to be so familiar with that high blood sugar state and that high insulin state, then any deviation from that is going to make you feel a bit weird. It's like going to the gym for the first time. Like It feels uncomfortable, it might hurt, we might get a little bit dizzy but we know that we're doing it you know, for the right reasons. We know we're getting healthier in the process. And it's the same here. If you've been stuck in this high sugar state for such a long time and you do start to make these deviations and create a bit of space between meals or start lowering the carbohydrates in your meal, you might feel a bit weird. You might feel a bit dizzy. You might feel a bit queasy. You might feel a bit inflamed. It won't feel familiar, which kind of shows up as a real state of brain fog or confusion or delusion or depression or a lack of focus and productivity. And this is temporary. If you're feeling stuck in this state, know that yeah, it can be uncomfortable in the beginning, but it's temporary. We're creating some changes in a positive direction in between meals, but your body will slowly begin to adapt to these new changes that we're making. This is another reason to take the one tweak a week so you don't feel these negative experiences and we can get your liver and your pancreas and your insulin and your blood sugar 
back to a place where they are going up and down and regulating themselves in a way that you barely notice so that you will be totally fine all day for your body to manage these things as it has done for all of human history of all the healthy humans that have ever existed. You'll be reverting your body back to the natural way in which it should be functioning. Now, the other way, the other thing to mention here is that insulin is in many ways, and this is simplified, of course, but essentially the gatekeeper to your fat stores. This is why I mentioned in the weight loss section before, getting your blood sugar under control needs to happen first because before you start seeing weight loss results. Because think of it like this, and this is Jason Fung's two-compartment model. The fridge and freezer, the fridge is the food that you're eating on a daily basis that ends up in your blood and then into your liver and your muscles. And the freezer is your body fat, the stuff that's been stored ages ago. So the freezer is stored food energy. So when you have food in the fridge, like food in your belly and that sugar in your blood, insulin goes up. And insulin goes up because it needs to direct all the sugar to where it needs to go. And whilst it's there, it's also making sure that nothing comes out of fat stores. Nothing opens the freezer because it's like, we've got enough going on here. We don't need to also access that energy. So when you're in a high blood sugar and high insulin state, you cannot burn your body fat, at least not significantly enough to make a big difference. So we need to create windows throughout the day and of course overnight where insulin goes down low enough, the insulin director or coordinator to say, okay, there's nothing coming in from the gut. There's nothing in the blood. Let's open the door to the freezer and see what we can pull out and defrost. Does this make sense? So if we have food in the fridge, food in your stomach, sugar in the blood all the time, we cannot, we cannot access the stored food energy in the freezer, aka your body fat. We can't burn it. There is really no need for the body to do that since you've got the food in your stomach that's readily available and doesn't need to be defrosted. So now you might start to see why grazing all day or the six meals, eat six times a day is an ineffective weight loss strategy because it means we keep insulin up all day and we eat too late. So the insulin's up while we sleep. We wake up kind of hungry and we eat again. And it's usually, you know, that toxic cocktail we keep referring to. And you might even know someone that's been, you know, eating all the healthy foods, getting out, having three meals, three snacks, smashing the gym, but they're not getting the weight loss benefits. There's no weight loss. It's really common because we're not allowing insulin to go down. Plus, usually those people are super busy. They're stressed as well. Um, and their sleep deprivation is exacerbated by the fact they're now getting up and going to a PT. Uh, there's so many layers as to why it's dysfunctional. But the point is, this is why low carb can help. This is why intermittent fasting can help and all of the other adjuncts that need to be added in here to be to create the whole holistic weight loss and holistic sense of wellness. And even though there might be some stages where it feels a little bit uncomfortable because you're going through that transition of being a sugar burner and feeling that instability of the blood sugar as your body gets used to it, it's all about taking one tweak a week and there is definitely a transitional period. I mean, in my program, we purposely do it super slowly, one tweak a week. That's why I've got that mantra that virtually, you know, Nobody really experiences any of these negative experiences because we do it so slowly. But we're all different. There's a transition phase for everyone. It comes at different times. And hey, you know, if getting healthy was easy, we'd all just be healthy, right? (laughs) Also, on the insulin resistance, if you'd like to get some more depth on what I'm talking about here, I did an episode called What is Insulin Resistance? And it's episode 140. So, go back and check that one out. So, another reason you might do low carb is for Alzheimer's. 
Why? Because Alzheimer's disease has been called diabetes type 3 a lot by this point. There's a lot of research starting to support the idea that this disease is inherently related to the same dietary choices that are a feature of diabetes type 2. You guessed it, high sugar, high carb and high frequency of consumption, which... I think the more, you know, down the rabbit hole we go, the more diseases we find are the case, you know, that are related to diet, Alzheimer's, diabetes, cancer, insert disease. Basically, I think there's always a dietary component from where I stand. Apart from the very few unlucky people, and there is only a very few of those people that have a genetic anomaly happen. You can be definitely genetically predisposed to something and never experience it if you eat and live the right way. So, I specifically mean the genetic anomalies. They're the ones that I truly feel sorry for where shit just happens. But outside of this, I think diet can play a massive role. Getting your nutrition right can play a massive role, just like with Alzheimer's as we're discovering. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Anyway, the reason it would be good for this disease is because, again, it's kind of the same thing with the diabetic effect that's going on with the insulin and blood sugar. So, studies have shown that when you increase the fats or the MCTs, medium chain triglycerides, which you can get from coconut oil and you can buy at the uh, supplement store or the health store or even the supermarket these days, but be careful because they're not always sourced amazingly. So find an organic or regenerative source or biodynamic source. But studies show Alzheimer's patients that add MCT oil to their diets or coconut oil and increase the ketones in their blood, and this is obviously through the diet, um, but obviously, again, we could add in intermittent fasting here to elevate these results, but this study showed that adding the MCTs into their diet meant that they were able to regain thinking abilities, improve their memory, and start returning to the person they were before, and in some cases, completely returned to normal because they've recovered the health of their brain which is just astounding if you ask me. It's amazing. We've thought this was an incurable disease for so long and it turns out that there's a huge dietary component and obviously low carb reduces the sugars, reduces the insulin spike and can have this effect and by default, as long as we're eating correctly and timing it correctly, we're going to elevate those ketones, which is obviously therapeutic to the brain. Now, you might think, hang on, 
I thought the brain had to run on glucose. You hear a lot of people say glucose is the number one fuel source of the brain. Well, 75% of the brain's energy can actually be supplied by ketones. And some scientists actually think it's a superior fuel source for the brain, which I think is very plausible um, and probably very likely. Now, if you're an entrepreneur or a business owner, many sort of you know go-getting personalities or people that are into biohacking actually do the ketogenic diet because of the mental clarity benefits, because there's such significant focus benefits on a ketogenic diet, which is potentially more evidence as to why it would might help neurological function. If people are feeling so clear, so much clarity, so much focus, you know, having said that, I wouldn't really encourage people to just dive into the ketogenic diet because, well, you know, taking that overnight fad diet culture approach rarely lasts and it's rarely good for you and it might... Uh, knock your metabolism about too uh, if you don't go about it the right way. But the point here is that the in the Alzheimer's conversation, the mental health conversation, the brain degeneration conversation is that fat as fuel really does work quite impressively for the brain and it actually reduces these, one, the diabetic effects and then increases the fuel source of ketones to the brain, which has obviously got some type of restorative and repair effect, which um, you know is just insane. It's an insane thing that it's that easy to fix such a you know massive disease that we deal with, um, and now you know it's not, this is not a cure. I might get sued for saying for saying those words, <laughs> but there's definitely positive signs being shown in the literature. So yeah, if new to thinking about this type of thing, or you're getting to an age where you're starting to be worried about the possible things that will be you know be happening in your life, low carb might be useful here. And it's important to remember with dementia and Alzheimer's, these are diseases that can start. 10, 20, 30 years before there's any visible signs. And it's they're one of the neurological diseases that once you see the signs, it's way too late. It's way too late, right? So, um, we really want to do the work beforehand. Obviously, it's nice to know that there's, you know, ketones and MCT oil that can actually reverse some of this stuff. Amazing. But if we can prevent it altogether... That's that's really where we want to be at. So we don't want to be in a situation where we've lost five or ten or fifteen years of our life because we've been stuck in this Alzheimer's haze or this dementia haze um, to then have to spend another several few years recovering our brain. We want to miss that whole chapter together <laughs> by maybe using low carb and intermittent fasting could be useful as well as sleep. Sleep's so important for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and many of the clients I work with, we basically start out the day extremely low carb and finish the day with you know a decent amount of carbs on the plate so that we're kind of trying to leverage the best of both worlds, always from whole real food sources because again, micronutrients, minerals and electrolytes are important along with hormonal support, all really, really important. Next... Emotional eating. So, low carb can be good for emotional eating because a lot of our central nervous system is very familiar with attaching a range of emotions to carb and sugar rich foods that are, again, usually full of vegetable oil too, which degrades the brain, which degrades our central nervous system, making it harder and harder to make change, make decisions, stick to anything, right? (laughs) So, it can be good for emotional eating and change your sugar addiction tendencies because it can slowly wind back this dependency. The other thing is that our emotions and nervous system, what they do is they tie a particular set of behaviors. So, the emotion happens and then a set of behaviors happens and we actually tie it metaphorically speaking. There might, I don't think research is good enough to figure this out yet, but I mean metaphorically at the minute, but 
where they actually tie it to the insulin spike or the high blood sugar. So if you look back, you can likely find a pattern that exists where you essentially use food to numb out or the other way around, eating certain types of food causes you to numb out. And one of the reasons this is so ingrained in the spike in your in your hormones like insulin, uh, these triggers of or the triggers of all these emotions that lead to at these actions with the food in the or in the food world they're really good, right? So we need to figure out how to hack the system with a sort of like a combination therapy, if you like, um, of the psychological and the emotional because we certainly attach the psychological, the emotional and the physical. It all happens together at the same time. So the solution needs to be include all of those facets as well. And when we look back on it, we're effectively using high-carb and sugar-dense foods as a coping mechanism in the same way an addict would use alcohol or drugs. This is the exact reason inside my program, we have the first three to four weeks dedicated to mindset and beliefs and the psychological stuff and identifying who you are as a person and how you engage with your food on an emotional level, uh, which might make some people feel uncomfortable, but that's the work we got to do. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. (laughs) Sugarcoat it. Didn't even mean that Um, (laughs) because identifying who you are as a person and what you think about yourself because it's it's really important because the reason we are in the situation that we are with our health is because of a set of behaviors that we've repeated over years to get here. So, we need to identify those parts of ourselves that have been on autopilot for way too long and identify which foods we've attached to those repeating experiences as well as change the actual nutrition in that scenario as well. So, there's an emotional component but it must be supported by doing active mindset work at the same time because your emotional eating is not just physiological. It's not just, oh, I put bad food in. It's emotional. (laughs) Literally, it's in the name, emotional eating. (laughs) And some of us fall into the addict category too. Thus, it's very important. Well, it's essential that you rewire that process over time. One way to think about it and the way I often describe it is it's like reaching a fork in the road and on one side you have a perfectly paved or perfectly laid laid? (laughs) four-lane highway and that's the old habit. That's the you. That's the destructive food choices, the numbing out, the thing you've done over and over forever, but the stuff you want to go towards every time something happens. That's the thing you want to change. That's the binge eating, the wine every night, and you've built these neurons into a four-lane highway. So, when you walk onto the four-lane highway, it's easy because you feel so safe and secure and familiar. There's four lanes. I've got all the space. It's, it, this is easy. But over on the other side, so at this fork in the road, over on the right-hand side, there's the other option, which is the new behavior, the healthy choice, the managing of the emotion, the processing of the situation. And that's a tightrope that goes over a canyon full of water and there's crocodiles of water. (laughs) And so, being the new you and making those healthy choices is really quite frightening to your self-identity and your central nervous system, which... It's not just the food, it's all processing and detoxifying these emotions. It feels uncomfortable in the beginning because you haven't walked that path enough to turn it into a four-lane highway. It's just this tightrope. So, we have to go slowly, carefully and one step at a time to start laying the foundations for this highway on the other side, right? We, want, we, we need to swap, swap the resources over because currently walking that tightrope is what you need to do but it feels unsafe because it's just a tightrope and you might slip over and die. So, the transition in the behavior and building new neurological pathways has to be slow because you can't just go from four-lane highway to feeling amazing on a tightrope. It just doesn't happen. You don't feel safe over there. Nobody does. It doesn't matter how tough you are or how much willpower you have. 
If you do just have a crack at it, you'll feel unfamiliar and unsafe and your nervous system and your emotions will be like, I'm just going to go back to the highway. It feels way safer over there. (laughs) So you have to slowly lay pavers or lay tar and slowly build the road on the other side, which was once a tightrope and eventually you will slowly lay enough neurons. The myelin sheath that wraps up those neurons will get thicker in your brain and being the new you will change and eventually it will be as easy as your current set of behaviors. But it's a progressive thing. You can't just grow new neurons overnight. And people try to do that with fad diet culture. They're like, oh, I'll just pretend to be someone different. My nervous system won't even care. (laughs) My identity won't have a meltdown at all. But that's what happens. That's why yo-yo dieting happens. And ideally as well, the old four-lane highway starts to turn into a tightrope, starts to thin out. You see some potholes going on and it feels uncomfortable to go down that direction. That is the upgrade of beliefs and transformation. That's the magic right there. Laying highways. <laughs> all right, the next one, inflammation. Now, inflammation is the basis of all illness and disease and we can default our assumptions to why inflammation can be associated with a high-carbohydrate diet because I keep saying this and I bet you can guess it by now. It's because the government recommendations and the food that governments and farms make affordable via the economic models that hold up our society around food are foods that are by design extremely inflammatory because they're refined grains, genetically modified grains, genetically modified and altered sugars, artificial sweeteners, as as you know, masquerading as low sugar items in all of these different types of foods that are in a bag box or a can and our resident destroyer of your body, they're loaded with vegetable oils. Consuming these foods leads to inflammation. When I say inflammatory by design, by the way, I mean that the humans that designed the process, not by nature's design. 99% of these foods either don't exist in nature or are not toxic at all in their natural form. So going low carb generally means you're going to be forced to make better choices because when we lower the carbs, the primary sources of fuel we are left on the table with are lipids and proteins. So your fats and your proteins. And you're mostly going to get your lipids and your proteins from animal protein sources. And healthy fats from things like avocados, coconuts, nuts and seeds and of course the fat in the meat. Um, But the point is you're kind of generally forced to make better food choices because when you're eating high carb, most people have diets that are full of bread, crumpets, pancakes, bagels, sandwiches, croissants, muffins, all of which have our three favorite inflammatory ingredients. So when you take those options off the table, you're left with the options that fall more into the whole real food category with things like a good steak or eggs, an omelette, any type of protein-rich salad. There's a heap of options. You know, it's generally better food choices, which inherently reduces the inflammation because a lot of the the foods that are in the carbohydrate category or the high-carbohydrate category and in the recommendations from government are extremely inflammatory, which we know, or you know, we can just go back through the list that we've been talking through on this episode. They degrade parts of your brain. They could lead to Alzheimer's or it could cause your liver to be dysfunctional, your insulin production to dysfunction. So you could get insulin resistance or beta cell degradation in the pancreas. So you've got type 2 diabetes and of course weight gain. Weight gains are a common side effect of inflammation for many people. And the irony is that when you've got the extra weight on the body, the fat cells leak inflammation into the body. 
like a leaky tap, a, a dripping tap behind a wall that you can't see and the problem builds up and up and up. So reducing these types of carbohydrates in your diet can mean that you are less inflamed and by default, you're choosing healthier foods. Now, obviously, the argument can be made that you can be high carb and completely uh, plant-based like vegetarian and vegan diets are extremely high carbohydrate diets um, and yes, they they can work. You can be high carb um, and not be vegan or vegetarian as well, and they could be useful as well. However, I would argue that there's um, it's not as wonderful and rosy as it sounds because a lot of people find that they have different trigger foods, foods that trigger their sugar cravings or their you know bliss point food cravings, um, and they actually it's not as I can just eat anything that's grown out of the ground because they're like, oh, actually, this type of vegetable triggers me and this type of vegetable triggers me and it comes back to the type of carbohydrate and they have to eliminate those from the diet. You can, you can do that on any diet, but it's far less likely to have triggering foods on a low-carbohydrate diet um, in that realm for most people. Remember, everything I say is not for everyone um, and there's going to be some people that straight up disagree with me and um, I'd love to have you on the podcast. Love a good chat. Love a good debate. <laughs> The other thing to mention too before we finish this list is that carbohydrates are terrible at making you feel satiated, right? And to clarify, there's a difference between full and satiated. Full means you physically feel full. Satiated is a signal that goes from your fat cells to your brain via leptin telling your brain, we don't want any more food, we're not hungry anymore, the fat cells are full, we're not going to put any more food in. And so you put the fork down. You say no when the, the next round of chips comes around. You say you don't want another drink. You're done. That's satiated. That's actual satiation. So when you reduce the carbohydrates, which are not very good at facilitating satiety, you should by default increase your protein intake. Carb by not changing your protein is how you get low carb very wrong. <laughs> so don't do that. And so you should also increase your fat consumption and both protein and fats or your lipids are far more satiating than carbohydrates. So you'll feel more satiated, you'll feel fuller for longer, which therefore leads to less emotional eating because you're eating less, therefore there's less triggers, there's less carbohydrates in the meal that may trigger you um, and you're just physically nutrient satiated as well. Your gut and your nutrient receptors in your gut are feeling full and supplied as they should be. (laughs) However, because if you're on a high carb or high sugar, high vegetable oil diet, you're never going to feel quite full. And you keep swinging on the pantry door and the cupboard just trying to just trying to snack your way out of hunger and end up grazing all day. Have you been there before? I definitely have. 100% I have been there. And I know if I'm there, catch myself there, that I'm not doing my nutrition properly, which is absolutely a thing for me too. I'm a human as well. And anybody that pretends it's not a thing for them sometimes are likely a psychopath or a liar. (laughs) Rob Sivas actually says, who's a big guy in this low-carb space, says that, and I think this is true as well, a snack is always an emotional decision. It's an emotional experience. We should not need to snack if we're correctly satiated from a meal. So the good thing is lowering the carbs means that the protein and fat should by default go up and therefore we're going to be more satiated, less emotional eating, less hunger, less controlled by our food and as well something that people are really shocked by when they evolve through the program and we get into this low-carb world is that they find they're not really hungry in the morning and they have to develop this whole new relationship with the idea of hunger. Now, the interesting thing about being hungry in the morning is for many people, it's excess blood sugar and or excess insulin from the food they ate the night before. So, you might notice that during the week when you're in the routine of waking up, 
and you know you've got your normal cycle going on. You could probably, you know, take or leave breakfast, but you take it because that's the routine. However, on a Friday or Saturday night, when you catch up with a, you know, your partner for a date night or you go to an event with the kids and there's lots of food there or you know, you go to a gig or something and you grab a pizza or maybe you have a few wines or you have some ice cream on the way home too. And basically, you just massively overeat, which is totally fine to do, by the way. And you should give yourself permission for that to happen when it does. But the next morning after having a night like that, you notice you're actually hungry. You feel like you've got a sense of hunger going on. And if you think about it from a mathematical standpoint, Not that the body is, you know, as simple as a calorie deficit personal trainer would like to have you think it is. But if you think about it in a relatively logical way, with all of the food energy that you put into your body last night, why are you hungry today? You shouldn't be, right? Because you ate so much just like eight hours ago. And there's no calorimeter in your body that at midnight goes, cha-ching, we're back to zero, reset. If only, right? If only, none of us would have any excess body fat. (laughs) So, it doesn't happen like that. So, why are you hungry after a huge sugar, carb, veggie oil evening? That's because you've put so much food into the body the night before that your blood sugar was sky high whilst you were were sleeping and and so was insulin, plus you were sleeping. So, that slowed the whole process down. Everything happens slower and many of the other systems and functions that should happen when you're asleep are impaired. And you know, and what, and on those things are things that are meant to make you feel great in the morning. Uh, they can't happen during a night of sleep that is prefaced with this situation. And so, when you wake up, you're in a situation where your blood sugar is either either your blood sugar is still high or your blood sugar's gone back to normal. But there's so much insulin. Insulin was launched into the system at such a rapid rate because there was so much stuff to clean up, and now there's an excess amount of insulin just hanging out in the system. And what does insulin look for? insulin looks for sugar and so it tells the brain if insulin's in the bloodstream and there's no blood there's no sugar in the bloodstream for the insulin to do its job guess what it tells the brain it says hey you're hungry we need to put some sugar into the blood to mop up this insulin this insulin's got a job to do right and so that's how the brain interprets it as a feeling of hunger after a massive night so i want you to notice this next time like in your normal week you wake up you you might not feel really hungry in a normal day But the nights, the morning after big nights, you feel more hungry than usual. It's really common. So, yeah, see if that you notice that in your world. And in in context of going low carb, you might notice that you feel less hungry in the mornings uh, and that breakfast just kind of you don't want it anymore. Or or it might be dinner for you. It might be on the other end of the day because you might really get a lot out of having your first meal in in the early morning and some people do. I find most people don't but some people definitely do and they prefer the the morning and lunchtime eating window as opposed to the lunchtime and evening window and they decide to move their final meal to earlier in the afternoon for some people. So, that's totally cool. Effectively, you know, you're eliminating dinner in that that scenario when you're using intermittent fasting. And that's why it's such a powerful adjunct to low carb. Now, remember, both low carb and intermittent fasting are not about starvation and also not inherently focused on calorie restriction either. So, it's not about eliminating foods from your diet or eliminating meals. For instance, if you miss out on breakfast, it's not that you missed out on it. We just broke the fast at a later time in the morning. Instead of 7, we break the fast at maybe 11 when you're actually hungry. It's about changing the time that you eat those foods, which optimizes your function in the context of your life because everybody's life's different. Um, And that'll also should allow you to release body fat consistently and reverse these conditions that hopefully you are in time to catch and essentially help you get your mind and your body back because who doesn't want that? 
In addition to all of this, there are some useful aids that can really take you to another level with this stuff. So intermittent fasting, I've mentioned it a heap of times already. It's going to be hugely helpful to this, that low-carb intermittent fasting. They're like best mates (laughs) because that's going to encourage your body to utilize body fat as your normal metabolic energy and encourage your organs to do the work they were designed to do. The other one is exercise. So, increase the demand on your muscles in order for your body to be more favorable utilizing these fuel sources as well. Remember, eat less, move more doesn't really work. So, when you increase exercise, you will naturally increase the amount of food that you put into your body because your requirement has gone up. So, don't try and starve yourself through a gym workout, okay? Fasted workouts are okay, but what I mean is that when you do eat, don't try and eat less and keep yourself hungry. I don't know somebody that's, you know, felt amazing about their health journey that felt hungry throughout it. (laughs) It's not a fun feeling. In almost all studies that have been done on thousands, tens of thousands, actually collectively, now I think about the books that I've got here on the shelf, it would be hundreds of thousands of men and women. It shows that when exercise goes up, calorie consumption also goes up. Because, of course, we're burning more fuel. It's the same as if you want to drive an extra 100 kilometers in your car and you don't put more fuel in. It doesn't work. A disaster happens. (laughs) Another great tool to facilitate a good low-carb experience, as is with any dietary intervention really, is learning or improving your, your emotional stress response or your stress management system. If you spend a lot of time in a stress response in that fight flight or freeze uh, or life has just always been stressful or you've grown up stressed or you know you're just sort of stuck in this state you're going to be hungry because stress is expensive (laughs) from an energy standpoint so you're going to be hungry you're going to be seeking out these usual cocktail of toxic culprits which lead to all of the problems we've just talked about today so you need to get an effective stress management Uh, process in place, one that can happen when you've got time for yourself and one that can happen literally in 30 seconds to two minutes. You need to start getting a hold of this emotional experience. And the final and most impactful aid is sleep. Sleep underpins everything because when you're sleeping, that's when your body does a lot of its repair. It's repair to your nervous system, it repairs your brain, it repairs your gut, it recovers and repairs your muscles and it should also be doing a number of immune system upgrades overnight as well. And they've done a number of studies which show that the relationship between sleep deficiency and Alzheimer's and sleep and insulin resistance and sleep and diabetes and sleep and obesity and the relationship between all of these and a lack of sleep is really strong. In addition... Only one night of six hours, one night of six hours or less of sleep shows that the next day you consume between 300 to 500 calories extra than you normally would because you're sleep deprived, right? Your prefrontal cortex, which is in the middle of your forehead, and you can literally put your finger there in the middle of your forehead. That's where your prefrontal cortex is. That's the rational, logical decision-making part of your brain. And so, that extra 300 to 500 calories that you consume on a sleep-deprived brain is likely to be unhealthy food because the rational part of your brain is so sleep-deprived, it can't talk you out of choosing crappy food. This might be referred to in a way as the willpower muscle in many ways. So, your brain literally withdraws a percentage of its resources and function from the prefrontal cortex in an attempt to save resources and energy to simply stay awake longer and maintain enough awareness to not die. (laughs) The main goal of, you know, being alive. And so, not only do you eat more food, but you go to some of the poorest choices as well, like Macca's, that's McDonald's for our international listeners, or you go to KFC or you order a pizza or donuts. And yeah, I can just hear you and your brain right now saying, Maddie, just one night of six hours or less? I haven't slept more than six hours in years. (laughs) 
The entire answer to all of your health issues, weight gain, sugar cravings, sugar addiction is likely right here, right here. Working on your sleep is a foundational pillar of weight loss, of insulin resistance, of mental health, of depression. Like it's kind of important. I actually think it's the most important health variable. You've probably heard me talk about it on a bunch of our sleep episodes, but sleep is one of the most important aids that you can use in any dietary intervention, whether it be low carb, high carb. I'm not really a fan of low fat as most people replace the fat with toxic foods. We've talked about this in in the episode, so I don't think many people should do that. But you know, pick your thing. If it works for you, amazing. You do you. Um, Even difficult conversations benefit from... Uh, you know, an amount of sleep that you can navigate your emotions and get clarity on your thoughts. And so, you can have healthier relationships with more sleep. Sleep is the thing. Get more of it. One final thing, the biggest low-carb mistake that people make is that they continue to buy stuff in a bag or a box or a can that is labeled as low-carb. To me, that's what I call low-carb packet crap. (laughs) because these foods often have vegetable oil still in them, even in the health food aisle in the supermarket and in health food stores. So, you've got to read the label. So, many of these foods labeled as low-carb or keto-friendly or protein bars actually still have vegetable oil in them, as well as a load of chemicals to make the taste and the texture comparable to the food they're trying to replicate, including artificial sweeteners. That's how they get away with saying no sugar. But the artificial sweetener in many instances is interpreted by your brain in the same way as sugar. So, it will likely cause cravings, a lack of satiety, uh, or actually spike your insulin. Crazy, right? Like these artificial sweeteners actually can spike your insulin. And some of these artificial sweeteners do the same thing as sugar, and they can even spike it higher. Uh, And then you've got this situation where you've got insulin in the blood again, looking for sugar, and guess what? You're using artificial sweeteners. So, there's no sugar in the blood. So, guess what? You don't have sugar in the blood. So, that leads to you being hungry and looking for more food to put in the body for that insulin to be mopped up. If you've got excess insulin there, it's going to find a way to be cleaned up via sugar. And that situation can obviously lead to a downward spiral down the rabbit hole, falling off the bandwagon. You go, you know... So, don't eat the low-carb, sugar-free packet crap. It's not going to help you at all. It's just going to mean that you yo-yo and cycle in between good days and bad days and you know which we do anyway because we're human but we don't need to make it harder for ourselves like by self-sabotaging when we know this information. And lastly, jerf. Just eat real food. (laughs) Boom! All right, gang, I get pretty excited about low carb, obviously. (laughs) Thanks for listening into today's episode. Don't forget if you want to join the program where we do a lot of intermittent fasting, sleep work, stress work, and of course, low carb nutrition, but not no carb nutrition because we're going to manage these hormones. If you're interested in that, we've got five spots available currently for the final intake of 2021. Now, no matter when you listen to this episode, the program will be available. However, obviously, the price rise is happening this week. So, if you want to get in, now and grab one of those five spots that are left before the price goes up. Now is the time. Drop down to the show notes below. If you have enjoyed this episode, then I encourage you to take a screenshot, chuck it into your social media, give us a share, tag me at Maddie Lansdowne or whichever app you're on. And more importantly, if you've got a family member, a friend or a colleague that you've got a good relationship with and you can talk about this type of stuff and you feel like they need to hear this episode, share this episode with them and who knows, change their life. (laughs) All right, my healthy friend. Thanks for being here. I will catch you on the next episode. See ya.
Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavor to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.